0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God, we ask that you would open our eyes to your word and that you would open our hearts to receive it. With, uh, with integrity, with commitment, with, uh, with an open trust uh, that you have good plans for us, that you have good intentions for us. Help us to look to Christ in faith and receive the wisdom that you have to offer to us uh, through him and through your word, through your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, you can be seated and our text today is James 1 verses 4 through 8, 5 through 8. In the red Bibles, kind of the reddish burgundy Bibles, it's page 1233, 1233. In the brown Bibles, it's page 1011, so 1011. Um, also in those uh, journals, it's just page one, right? So it's just right there in front of you. Uh, I was gone last week. Uh, Scott did an excellent job of leading you through those first few verses in James, really intense. James just starts out with such intensity. I was on a trip with Eli. Eli and I went on a trip down to Denver. We were in. Um, we went, did some hiking in the Rockies. We went to a Broncos game. We went to a Colorado Rockies game. We just did all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, what we did while we had a lot of driving time was we listened to the mysteries of Sherlock Holmes. Anybody listen to Sherlock Holmes, these mysteries? And Sherlock Holmes is just this eccentric guy, and he's got his, his buddy, his sidekick, Dr. Watson And people come to him when they're stuck, when they're in a mystery. There's some sort of trial that has come upon somebody, either a victim that isn't getting the help they need from the detectives or the detectives need help solving a crime or a case. And then uh, Sherlock Holmes comes in and he's just able to see what other people miss. It's stuff that's there. And then because he sees what not everybody else sees, he makes decisions that not everyone would think of and he ends up solving the mystery and uh, I think that's somewhat similar to what our text is here today, is that we often face trials that bring us uh, to a point of just utter confusion and exasperation and frustration. And in this text, we, James gives us some instruction on how to gain wisdom, how to see what we can't naturally see with the eyes of the flesh, that we can't see in just our normal circumstances. We need supernatural wisdom. We need to be able to see things differently so that then we can live differently uh, for the glory of God, and be able to make it through these trials. Now, we don't go to a Sherlock Holmes. We are to go to God. Because in order for trials to have the effect in our lives that God intends, which is steadfastness and, and perseverance, that then leads to, um, to us being perfect, lacking in nothing, uh, we need supernatural wisdom. We need supernatural resources. And what is our part in that? Our part in that is to do what he says here, is to, uh, if we lack wisdom... We are to ask of God who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given, and we're to ask in faith. And so that is the process that God uses to make us perfect. That's the promise in chapter, or verse 4, is that God will make us perfect through trials uh, if they have their effect. If they have their effect. And he does this interesting thing in verse 4. Oh, I didn't put, uh, I lost my page there. Uh, verse 4 He says, "...and let steadfast have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." So, God is committed to our sanctification. God is committed to our glorification. God is committed to our perfection. And the means by which He sands off the rough edges, He cleanses the sin, He removes the doubt, is through trials. He does it through trials. And He is committed to your perfection. He is committed to your completion to the point that the end goal will be that you lack nothing. Now, in the meantime, we see in verse 5, if you do lack something, which trials reveal what we lack, don't they? You face a trial, you face a challenge, and all of a sudden you realize that you're not as smart as you thought you were. You're not as financially secure as you thought you were. Your relationships maybe weren't as strong as you thought they were. Some trial hits, and all of a sudden, the control of your life feels like it's slipping through your hands. And you don't know what to do and it feels painful, and you just want out of this trial. What do we do? What do we do when we see that the trials are exposing that we do lack wisdom? We're not complete. We're not perfect. Well, James gives us this really sweet reply that we should ask for wisdom. We need wisdom. We need God to help us through this. So how do we get this wisdom? Well, before I get to that, maybe some trials that maybe are you're experiencing are debilitating pain. That's a trial. Declining business, work, struggling for a job, maybe aging family members whose health is declining, that's a trial to care for them and to see them going through just the, the decline that human bodies go through. A wayward child is a trial, miscarriage is a trial, persecution is a trial, violence, suicide, addiction, Regret from your past, that's a trial. Unemployment, death, disease, gossip, criticism, those are all trials that come at us. They can put us in a spot where we don't know what to do. Aimlessness, apathy, depression, anxiety, singleness can be a trial. Marriage is a trial. Childlessness is a certain trial. Having children is another kind of trial. Doubts, loneliness, bullies, abuse, prejudice, racism, we could go on and on about the ways that the broken world and our broken selves reveal that we lack perfection. We live in a broken world and we live broken lives and trials reveal that and God has promised that trials will be a means by which he will refine and strengthen us. But in order for that to happen we need supernatural wisdom i would define wisdom as the ability to live skillfully in all circumstances for the glory of god the ability to live skillfully to navigate anything in any circumstance to the glory of god and the good of others we could add as well so this idea of loving god with all our heart soul mind and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves, God is aiming for that to happen, for that to be refined in us. And so, if the end goal that God is committed to is to bring you to perfection to the point that you no longer lack, lack anything, what happens then when a trial reveals that you do lack something? And that's what we get here. We're to go to God for that. How do we get this wisdom from God when we have this connection of this lacking that He says that He is going to supply? We go to God. We need supernatural wisdom. And the way we receive that, three simple steps here. The way we receive God's supernatural wisdom in our trials is, number one, admit your need. we are going to see that right away in verse five. Number two, ask God, because he gives generously. And then number three, align your heart. Align your heart, ask in faith. And then he describes a little bit of where the challenges will come to aligning your heart to that. So it's really basically our outline today is that if you're in a trial and you need God's wisdom to help navigate it for His glory and for the good of others, admit your need, ask God, and align your heart. Let's just unpack those for a few minutes. First, it's admit your need. Look at James 1, the very first line, okay? If any of you lacks wisdom, and he puts it in the the form of a hypothetical, like if you, and the invitation there is for us to examine our hearts. What trials are you going through and what are they revealing that you lack? He doesn't just hammer us with something harsh here, he invites us to do some introspection. Doesn't he? I think the assumption is is that we all lack wisdom, none of us is perfect. All of us have trials. But he's inviting us very gently to go, "Hey, examine your heart, take a moment. Do you lack something? Do you lack something?" Trials can be counted as joy when they reveal our need for God. Ecclesiastes says that it's better to be in the house of mourning than at the house of feasting. That there's something about being at a funeral that sort of brings some clarity to what really matters, right? There's something about pain and struggle and death and loss that sort of makes all of the silly things that we spend our time on kind of find their right perspective, right? And so trials reveal that, man, I am not sovereign. I am not as in control as I thought. I don't know as much as I thought I did. And that can actually result in our joy when they reveal our need for God. So that's what James is walking us through here, is He's walking us through the painful process of, in our trials, realizing that we need God. And that's an uncomfortable place to be, but it can lead to joy when we find that our God is sufficient. If you don't feel like you need anything, then really God has nothing to offer you, Right? So, the invitation here is that if anyone lacks wisdom, meaning that you need to come to a realization that you have needs, that you have a need for God. If you can live in this broken world with your own broken heart and mind and body and think, I think I got it, then you're a fool. You're a fool. And you won't receive God's wisdom. The first prerequisite is to admit that you are not God, you are not sovereign, that you need something from Him, that you lack. And so the very first step is for us to admit our need, especially in trials, admit our need for God and His wisdom. We, think it, we, we see in Mark chapter 10 where a, man, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus kind of plays along and says, well, have you kept the law? And he lists off all the things and yep, uh, yep, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. And Jesus says, one thing you lack sell all you have and come follow me. And the man won't do it. He's unwilling to admit that he has a need. And actually his wealth is blinding him to his need. And then Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom because riches can numb, can obscure our need. We can use our resources and our affluence and our own own wisdom to sort of numb ourselves to our real need. And one of the great things about trials is they just sort of demolish our sense of self-reliance, right? So trials can be for joy when they break down and Jesus, with great love for this rich young ruler, deconstructed his wealth. But in the end, the idea that he would need Jesus more than wealth was too much for him. We think of Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee goes up, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like this tax collector, because I have all the spiritual resources I need. God, you are so lucky to have me on your team. I don't need anything from you. And then there's the tax collector who won't even look up to heaven, beating his chest, going, have mercy on me, a sinner. I have nothing. I need you. And Jesus says, which one went away justified? Which one went away with, I guess if we can put it in James language, the wisdom of God, a relationship with God? Well, the one who admitted his need. Churches can do this too. Churches can be self-reliant. We think of Revelation chapter 3, the church at Laodicea, where actually churches, communities of faith can actually be, I am rich and I am... I'll just read it for you actually because it's so powerful. Listen to what Jesus says as he talks to the church at Laodicea. He says, for you say I am rich, this is Revelation 3.17, for you say I am rich, I have prof- prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you actually are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked, and I counsel you to come to me, to buy gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and garments and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and, sh- and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. So this idea of that actually church communities can get to a point where they no longer see their own neediness and they essentially lock Jesus out of their fellowship. Fundamentally, the Christian life is about our need for God. We have to admit our need. So this invitation here, is to acknowledge that in trials at all times, to admit that you need God. You need His wisdom. This sounds so much like what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at just a few months ago. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The needy. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn presumes loss. You're lacking something. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they don't have it, right? They have a need, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. They need mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they have persecuted the prophets who were before you. So just all throughout the scriptures, we have this idea of neediness. Jesus says you can't come to him unless you come to him like a child, dependent. That is the direction of spiritual maturity. And that's also the direction that that James is inviting us to go. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So number one, we have to admit our need. So this is the question I would leave you with, is do you have a need for God's wisdom? Or are you pretty much good on your own? That's really the first question. Do you see your neediness? Secondly, let's assume that you do. Trials, life, sin relationships, heartbreak have revealed, yes, I need God. I don't know how to do life on my own. I need His wisdom. Number two, this is the last part of verse five, let him ask God. What a sweet thing. Let him ask God. You can just go to God with that. Freely, openly, just ask. Why? Because He gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given you. If you complete step one and come to this place of desperate neediness, and you say, yes, I am way over my head, I don't know how to do this, congratulations, you're in the beatitude state. Congratulations, you now are in a state of being able to receive what God has for you. We tend to, when we find our need, to go to everything but God, right? When you have a need, you have heartbreak, you have something that's just way over your head, you tend to go to Google. I'll just Google it. YouTube probably has a four-minute video on this, right? I got a life hack, some sort of technique that I can use to get me to not, so I can just sort of comfort myself to get out of this tough state. Sometimes we'll go to our doctor or our therapist. Maybe we'll go to weed or to meds, to alcohol, to sex, to pornography. Maybe we'll trust in our money. Self-help gurus, life coaches, or medicine men. We'll go to anything but God to try to get us out of this situation, right? And James says, no, your first instinct should be to go to God, to ask Him. Why? Because of His disposition, He gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to Him. None of those things will satisfy your deep soul need for wisdom. Instead of chastising us, James woos us with the goodness of God. Doesn't shake his finger at us and go, you should ask God because He'll be mad at you if you don't he woos us with the goodness of God. Why? Why, Why should I fight against that, that, that tendency to try to find a solution on my own? Why should I go to God? Because he's so much better than anything else you could go to. He has all the wisdom, all the resources, all the knowledge. He knows you, he loves you, and he will give to you. He's generous to all, and he gives without reproach. Why would he not be the first place we go? Instead of chastising us, James woos us with the goodness of God. The confidence and motivation to ask God rests not in your character or your worthiness, but in God's. See that? You don't have to clean yourself up. The point is you recognize your need and you go to him in your neediness, in your sin, in your brokenness. You go to him. You don't clean yourself up to come to him. His desire is to meet you where you are. And he wants to. We see God's eagerness to do this. We get two terms here. He gives generously and He gives without reproach. Giving generously means that without dividing. So God doesn't like look at His bank account and what's the minimum amount of wisdom I could give Him? It's like, no, I give my whole self to you. God isn't budgeting His wisdom. He's giving it generously. He doesn't look at you in your situation and go, you know what, they really only deserve a little bit of wisdom. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. He gives generously without dividing. Literally, the Greek, it's without folding. doesn't fold it in half and then give it to you. He gives it generously. He gives all of it that you will, want, that you will take. The second thing it says is that he's without reproach. He gives without reproach, which has the idea of he's not frustrated that you came and asked him again. He's not prejudiced. He doesn't size up the equation and go, I gave you wisdom last time. You blew it off. Now I'm not going to give you so much. He doesn't do that. He doesn't chastise you for needing his wisdom. He doesn't reproach you. He's not like me when my kids ask me for the 15th time for for ice cream or popcorn or whatever. He's like, no, every time, every time. He's never tired of you and your need for him. This reminds us so much of what Jesus says in Luke 11, 9-13. He says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. And he talks about the why. Because what father, if his son asked for a fish, instead of a fish, gave him a serpent? And if he asked for an egg, will give him a scorpion? You then... Who are evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And again, we're going to see in James, I think, a connection between wisdom and the Holy Spirit. The fruits of wisdom look a lot like the fruits of the Spirit. So what's amazing is that when we acknowledge our need and we come to God, God gives us Himself. He gives wisdom, but He doesn't give wisdom as sort of like just this body of content downloaded into your brain. He actually comes and lives inside you by the Holy Spirit and holds you by the hand. It's the difference between me calling my dad and saying, I have a leak under the sink, sink, and he walking me through it on the phone. That would be great. But saying, no, I'll come over and let's fix it. That's what's being described here is that God will himself come and walk with you. We have this connection that he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. The third person of the Trinity will come and reside in you and lead you and guide you by wisdom. He comes and walks you by the hand. He doesn't just give you some facts and says, figure it out yourself. No, I will live and reside in you. So this connection between wisdom and the Holy Spirit. But also there's a connection between the wisdom that God gives and Jesus himself. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 24. For since in the wisdom of God, the world does not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. They just don't get it. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So when trials bring us to a point of need and we need to ask God for guidance and wisdom and knowledge, he doesn't just give us data, he gives us himself. He gives us the Son, he gives us the Spirit. Is that not amazing? Trials result in joy when they drive you to receiving God for yourself, to lead and to guide you. So this cry for wisdom is ultimately a cry for God. I need God. I don't just need life hacks or pithy little statements. Those can be helpful and use of God, but I need God. And God is willing when we come and ask Him in our neediness to give us Christ to give us the Holy Spirit, to give us himself as a father, and then to lead and guide us. Not in a distance, but close. Let me come walk with you. Let's walk through this trial together. It's not just that I need more facts that can be helpful, but I need God himself to walk me through with wisdom. So the question in point two is, after realizing your need for God, will you go to him? Abandon all the other things. Those might be helpful, but only in in so much as you ask God first. My ultimate need in any and every circumstance is more of God. Then number three, align your heart. Here's what he says. Ask, but ask in this way. Align your heart. James 1, 6. But let him ask in faith. So here's the condition, in faith. God is unbelievably generous to those that are in faith, asking in faith. Faith in what? What are we supposed to put our faith in? What's the point here? What are we supposed to be putting our faith in? I think three things. One, God's favorable disposition towards me. God's favorable disposition towards me if I'm trusting in Christ. That God is going to do what He promised, use my trials to bring about perfection and completion. And when I'm not seeing that happen, I can go to Him knowing that He's going to give me wisdom to then be able to see what He's doing and to sustain and to let that happen. So I go to God in faith, understanding that in Christ, He has a favorable disposition for towards me. That's number one. I think this is also faith in God's good purposes for my trials. Ultimately, it's his character that I'm resting my confidence in and that that character is going to be used for my good, that God's going to be glorified in helping me through this trial and bringing about the perfection that he wants to see in me. And I think the third thing is this is all demonstrated in the gospel. If you would just take a moment and look at Romans chapter 8. I think Romans 8 just unpacks this theme so much. I'm just going to read a big chunk of it because it really doesn't need any other explanation. Look at verse 18. You read the whole thing, but let me just read from verse 18 for a while here. (laughs) This idea of this asking in faith, in God's good purposes, God's good disposition towards me in Christ. Listen to this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That's what I'm putting my faith in, is the God who will do that. For the creation waits with eager eager, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption. Not only, skip down to verse 3, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. We're crying out for wisdom because we lack it. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Not hope that is seen, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, in our need. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Holy Spirit Himself intercedes for us with grumblings too deep for words. And He who searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit. The mind and the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Skip down to verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Skipped over 28. I shouldn't have. We know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who have been called according to his purpose. Down to 31. What shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? Like wisdom. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors. Verse 37, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, listen to the trials here, death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we put our faith in is the God who has demonstrated His love and His good purposes for us in Christ. You could go to Hebrews chapter 11 and talk about how people in faith trusted in the promises and character of God. And He walked them through. Some of them, it worked out great. Some of them, not so great. But they're all in faith, receiving the promises of God. So the bottom line is, is have you put your faith in God through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you admitted your sinful state before a holy God? And then looking at Jesus, seeing that He is the Son of God who came, who died on the cross for your sins, rose again for your justification, is seated at the right hand, and now offers you forgiveness of your sins, access to wisdom, an eternal life with God, and the Holy Spirit Himself coming to live inside you. That is what in faith means here, is this idea of embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ and now entering into this relationship with God whereby he now resides in you and guides you through wisdom. Now all of your trials are going to be used for good. You can have that guarantee. Let him ask in faith. Faith in God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which leaves us with one big challenge. Our own doubting double-mindedness. Look at what he says in verse 6b-8. through We're to ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. So what's really going on in life is the problem is not the trials, as tragic as they may be. The fundamental challenge is not other people. The fundamental challenge is not God. The fundamental challenge is my own heart. My own heart. In trials, my heart doubts God's goodness, right? In trials, my heart doubts God's disposition towards me. And maybe God just hates me. In trials, my, my heart doubts God's purposes and power. Like, is he really going to accomplish what he said he's going to accomplish? And part of the perfection is to help drive and purge that doubting, that double-mindedness from us. So when we find that, we just go back to verse 5 again. Ask God for wisdom. If you're struggling with doubts and double-mindedness, go back to verse 5. Ask God for wisdom. Admit your lack. Admit your doubt. Admit your double-mindedness. And this process continues. This is not a one-time thing. This is an all-of-life thing. That as we struggle, we go to God for wisdom, and He gradually, slowly refines us through trials and challenges. Remember those two key words about God? He gives generously and He gives without reproach. There seems to be a connection here between the two words that are described, the, describing the doubting, double-minded er, person. <laughs> no doubting is the word in Greek diokrino, which means two judgments. This is not, I don't think, talking about the kind of doubt, which is just this humble struggle of weak faith. Jude 22 tells us that we should have mercy on those who doubt. We should be gentle with those who struggle with legitimate doubts. Even in Mark 9, there's a man with a demon-possessed son that comes to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, if you can heal him, please do so. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Which is James 1.5. I'm lacking in some faith, God, but with the faith I have, I'm trusting you. And then Jesus heals the boy. This is not a call for us to have perfect faith. This is a call for us to have true faith. A genuine faith. No, I think that what he is saying, the no doubting here, is a prideful rendering of judgment on God. This idea of, like, I'm going to stand back here and God go, God, you give me some wisdom, and then I'll decide whether or not I'm going to take your advice. That's the kind of doubting, I think, Di- diacrino, judging. I'm going to judge God's wisdom. So I'm going to ask for it, but then I'm hedging my bets. And if I don't approve of God's wisdom... If if I don't approve, if he doesn't come through the way I expect him to, that's the kind of doubting that seems to be described here. Is one who is pridefully rendering judgment on God, hesitating. Sort of, you give it to me and then I'll decide, God, whether or not I am going to implement it. That person is double-minded. Because they think that they know better than God. One commentator put it this way: the person who is thoroughly persuaded that if he asks God, he shall receive. Who is not thoroughly persuaded in God's character, he's doubting in this way, he resembles a wave of a sea, and in a state of continual agitation, like that just never settled in their hearts. Because they're always kind of judging God. And they're kind of, when things are good, I think God likes me. When things are not bad or not good, then then I'm kind of like doubting God. Like this, there's just this unsettledness that's talked about like a wave. There's rising in hope and sinking in despair, just constantly. One pastor put it this way, a wave of the sea is without rest, and so is the doubter. A wave of the sea is unstable, just like the doubter. The wave of the sea is driven by the winds, and so is the doubter. The wave of, wave of the sea is capable of great destruction, and so is the doubter. We think of back in the Gospels where Jesus' disciples are, he's sleeping in the boat and the boat's tossing all over the place. And they're like, Jesus, we're about to die. And he wakes up and says, where is your faith? Why did you doubt? These waves just tossed you all over the place. You thought that was more real than the Jesus in the boat. Peter steps out on the water. And as long as he's looking at Jesus, he's fine. But then when he takes his eyes off of Jesus and starts to calculate in his own strength how he's going to navigate the waves, he sinks. Why did you doubt? Where'd your faith go? You began to trust in yourself, and then you sank. When you just listened to my call and simply followed me, you were, doing, you were living a miracle. Why did you doubt? Why did you lose sight of me? Ephesians 4 talks about this doubting this double-mindedness, this wave. Ephesians four eleven through 12, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So we're talking about church life here. Till we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be tossed about, no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. So not being tethered to a local church is to doom yourself to instability, according to Scripture. That we all start in this space of children, doubting, tossed to and fro, and there's something about the body of Christ that itself begins to settle those waters and stabilize so that we can mature, we can grow, we can begin to have the wisdom that God intends for us to have. The doubter is unstable in their church attendance, unstable in their theology, unstable in their disciplines, unstable in their moods, unstable in their friendships, unstable in their commitments, unstable in their service to others, flighty, temperamental, unreliable. Because they don't have the wisdom of God. They're doubting God. The second word is is double-minded. Daisukos, literally two-souled. Two-souled. This is the first time it ever occurs in Greek. James made up a word to describe this person who's wanting wisdom from God, but wanting it on his terms. And he's got two souls. He loves God, but he also really loves the world. He has loyalty to two places. His heart, he has kind of a heart for God, but he also has a heart for doing things the way he wants to do this. The man of two souls has one for the earth and another for heaven. Who wishes to secure both worlds? He will not give up the earth and he will not let heaven go. In that case, the person, God is not going to give wisdom to equip the person to live two-sold. Too James is going to talk about this again in chapter 4. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Sounds like diacrino. That sounds like I'm going to judge and then I'm going to use God's wisdom to accomplish my glory, not God's. You adulterous people, too sold. You have double loyalties. You're not faithful to God. You're cheating on God with the world. You adulterous people. You're too sold. You're not committed to your one God. You adulterous people. You do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. You see the kindness of God, even in our sinful double mindedness. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think that's diacrino, the one who's judging God, trying to decide whether or not they're going to receive God. No. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And whatever wisdom he gives, you just commit to obeying it. Submit yourself, therefore, to God, resist the devil and He will flee from you. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. His heart is singly for you if your heart is singularly for him. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded Daisuke. You double-souled person. You cannot serve both God and money. You have to pick one. Be wretched and mourn and weep. let your laughter be turned to mourning. your joy to gloom, I think because you're enslaved to foolishness, right? You're double-souled. You can't receive the wisdom of God because your hands aren't open to him. Humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. So in conclusion, God is the God of open hands. He is not divided in his heart towards you. He's not. That's what he's saying. That's the contrast. Come to God and ask him because he's generous and he doesn't make distinctions. He's not prejudiced. He's not reviling. His heart is totally for you. You come to him with your heart totally towards him and receive whatever his open hands give you. Receive it with open hands without sorting out what you will and won't receive from him. As if you knew better than God what you need. Don't do that. God is the God of open hands. Will you receive with open hands whatever it is that he says? I think it's important to remember that God uses means. This is not just a passive download. I just ask God and I just sort of like sit there and do nothing. No, we're called to do something and I think that the scriptures teach us pretty clearly that there's a couple places where God puts his wisdom. That when you ask for wisdom, he's going to have you pursue a couple of things. Let me just list two. I could list many. One is, one of the means that God will send you to When you pray for wisdom, he'll send you to two things. One, he'll send you to his scriptures. He's just going to talk about that in just a few verses. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Foolishness. In Luke 6.46, he says, Why do you call me Lord and not do the things which I say? Psalm 1 talks about the righteous man who meditates on God's word day and night. He's like a tree planted by water. He's nourished all the time, his leaves. But the one who doesn't, who just lives by their whims, lives by the world, they're like chaff. They just get blown all over the place. There's nothing rooted. They're tossed like waves. This idea of being rooted and steady because we are anchored in God's word. So God will use means. God will, when you ask for that, will lead you to his word. Read his word. Study his word. And the second place that God will lead you to receive wisdom is the church. He will lead you to the church. We read that in Ephesians chapter 4, that He gave you pastors and teachers so that the body would build up so that you wouldn't be foolish anymore. You need discipleship. You need leadership. You need prayer. You need accountability. You need people to encourage you. You need one anothering. God has put a wealth of grace and wisdom in His church. And to ask God for wisdom and not engage His church, not engage the Scriptures, is just foolishness. Listen to Ephesians 3, 8 through 10, and this connection between the church and wisdom. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, Paul is saying, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So God is opening his hands to you with his scriptures, with himself, with his church to give you everything you need to live skillfully for his glory, for others' good. Ask in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask in faith with open hands, God, whatever you give me, I will receive it. I won't judge it. I won't pick and choose what I'll obey. I won't be double sold. Since your heart is entirely inclined to me without any reservation or hesitation, my heart is inclined towards you in this trial without hesitation, without, without sorting it out. So don't refuse to feast on his word and don't refuse to fellowship with him and then expect to live a skillful life. God is unhesitating and offering everything to you Will you be unhesitating in receiving it from him? Here's the call to respond. Will you honestly admit your need for God, for his wisdom, but for him himself? And if you'll honestly admit that, then I'd like you to move to number two. Sincerely ask God for wisdom. And then third, align your heart. Diligently align your heart to whatever it is that he gives. Not standing in judgment over it, assuming that the good purpose for trials is also the purpose I want to happen as well. If you'd bow your heads with me, I'm gonna read this quote from Spurgeon and I'm just gonna give you a moment then to respond, because I think he says it so well on how we should then respond. And I'm gonna give you a moment to just respond in your own seats there. Here's what he says let's bow. Do you believe that God can give you wisdom and that He will do so if you ask Him? Then go at once to Him and say, Lord, this is what I need. Specify your wants. State your exact condition. Lay the whole case before God with as much orderliness as if you were telling your story to an intelligent friend who was willing to hear it and prepared to help you. And then say, Lord, this is specifically what I think I want. And I ask this of you, believing that you can give it to me. Do that right now, in whatever situation you're in right now. Oh God, we come to you and we take stock of our life. We pause and we think. And we realize just how much we lack physical things, spiritual things, emotional things, relational things. And Lord, we confess that we're so quick to turn to anything and everything but you. Maybe we say we believe that you're real and that you love us and you care, but our actions and our impulses, our reflexes indicate that we don't really believe that. Lord, I pray that you would transform our hearts. There's nothing we can do to change our own hearts, so we ask you to do it. Help you to be our first impulse for our our first reflex is to pray. Whether that's in conversations with each other, whether that's on our drive to and from work, whether that's in conversations with our own kids, Lord, make our first impact um, instinct to pray. And then we pray, God, that you would give wisdom. Thank you for giving us wisdom in your scriptures. Thank you for giving us wisdom in the body of Christ. And we pray that each person here, whatever need they have right now, they would admit it. They would ask you and then they would have a heart to receive it that is in alignment with your word, in alignment with your wisdom, that they would receive it with open hands, without doubting, without double-mindedness. Help us do that. We can't do that in our own strength, so we ask you to help us do what you command us to do. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, because of the promises of your word, we trust that this is true, and we're banking our whole eternity on it, Lord. Help us to trust you in faith. And may we see your wisdom work its way out in this church and in, in these, these dear, dear friends here. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.